0: Hello, everybody. Please take a seat, Ariana. I was just explaining um, to Ariana that this is that this event I think sold out in about 32 seconds, right? And it, faster than Katy Perry, which is fast, <laughs> particularly in Australia. So thank you very much for being really quick on the click, and thank you, of course, Ariana, for being here. Now, you have had and are still having a remarkable life you were born and raised in Athens you moved as a young woman to England where you took up your studies in Cambridge and you became the first foreign-born woman to lead the Cambridge Union by the age of 21 you were in a love affair with the late Bernard Levin a man who was at that point twice your age and I think half my size exactly (laughs) and at the age of 23 you published your first book the female woman, which was a riposte to Germaine Greer, who I think was at that point technically the most frightening person in the world to get in a (laughs) fight with, right? Then you became a fixture on the British social and intelligentsia landscape. Then you married an oil baron and moved to America. You wrote several more books, uh, biographies of Callas, of Picasso. You became... A spokeswoman for the Republican cause. You called for the resignation of Bill Clinton. Your politics changed. You wrote more books. You became a, a very high profile broadcaster and writer. And in 2005, uh, you ran for the governorship of California. In 2005, you established the Huffington Post and became an unbankable media baroness of the modern era. I'm which leads me, <laughs> which leads me, Arianna Huffington, to my first question to you, which is, when you write a book telling us all to take a load off and have a snooze, why the hell should we believe you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for doing this, you know, I'm a big entirely fan. My pleasure. I'm a big fan and it's just great to have this conversation with you. Thank you all for being here and making me feel so welcome. The truth is that if I knew then what I know now, I would have told 20-something Ariana to just get some sleep and stop worrying. <laughs> what were you worried about? Because I was perpetually worried. I, was, um, I had this voice in my head that I describe in the book as the obnoxious roommate living in my head, you know, telling me how how I wasn't good enough, how, I mean, after every speech at the union, you describe, you see, you describe my life like a sort of uh, um, triumphant progression. It wasn't anything like that. Oh. Um, I didn't leave London to marry an oil baron. I left London because Bernard Levin wouldn't marry me. Mm. And he broke my heart and, and I didn't trust myself to stay in London and not go back to him. And by then I was 30, and I desperately wanted to have children. So in the same way that obnoxious roommate kept telling me, oh, you're never going to have children. Um, oh, Every book I wrote was such an agonizing process that I developed this uh, um, way to cheat myself and keep putting question marks when I wasn't sure if it was the right word or the right sentence on the side. I used to write longhand, and I mean, ancient, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you would look at it and it would have, like, it would be filled with question marks because I was second-guessing myself so much. Isn't that
0: fascinating the way that careers, particular, particularly very famous ones like yours, seem so clear in hindsight? In yes. retrospect, they seem <laughs> as though they were always going to happen like that, even a life like yours, which is full of adventure and risk-taking and, and bravado, and yet,
1: at the live stage, you were full of uncertainty. Absolutely, and that is so important uh, for everybody who succeeds uh, to keep talking about their failures. I'm a big believer in that because young people look at you and they think, you know, that your life kind of just happened. <laughs> and Ooh. then the truth is that no life just happens. You know, every life is full of ups and downs and failures along the way. And, and that's why... For me, what is the most exciting thing about this moment is that for the first time we have the science to validate ancient wisdom about the best way to live our lives. You know, we, we've, we're always told that it's important to renew ourselves, to meditate or to pray, um, to not worry about little things. You know, we are always told about that, whether by religion or um, just common sense. But, in fact, now we have an enormous amount of scientific findings that prove the importance of sleep and meditation and renewal and uh, how do we deal with worries and negative fantasies. And that's why in Thrive I have 55 pages of scientific Mm -hmm. endnotes because I really... endnotes are great. I really want to convince, you know, even the most stubborn skeptic that there is a better way to do life. Let's backtrack to that anxious young woman at
0: Cambridge. I'll let her go in a minute, but there's a couple (laughs) more things I want to know about her, particularly what happens in a 23-year-old woman's mind when she decides to write a book taking on uh, one of her university's most controversial alumnus, Jermaine Greer? What's it like to get in a fight with her when you're a young lady as you were? Well,
1: first of all, again, how this happened is that I did a debate at the Cambridge Union Mm -hmm. on um, the changing role of women. And I felt very strongly that feminism should really mean that women should be respected and honored for whatever choice they want to make. Like if they want to run a country, they should be given every opportunity to run a country. If they want to run a company, the same. If they want to be mothers and wives and are able not to work or they are willing to make the financial sacrifices not work, they should also be given equal respect. But at that time, long before you were born,
0: uh, actually, that was the year I was born, 99. so I was, you know... Were
1: you born in 1973? 73. Mm. Well, the year you were born, so you were not fully aware of what was happening. I was like... <laughs> I was still catching up on my reading. It, yeah. took, it took you at least six months to know what was happening. And during that time, um, women who wanted to have children, first of all, were dismissed as products of social conditioning. Mm-hmm you know, as imperialism had taken over and convinced them that they wanted to have children when, in fact, no sane woman would want to have a child because all that mattered was your career. And, you know, the women who were idealized were the women with the attaché case. Mm. And now, of course, what I wrote in The Female Woman is completely conventional wisdom. It's like we we do think that. We do value... um, what choices women make, even if they don't involve, you know, all the things that we thought would make women um, have um, be really successful in their lives. So that was really what I said in that debate. And then I got a, bo- a letter. Mm. Remember letters? You know, stamps. <laughs> I've, I've read about them on emails. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a letter from Germaine Greer's publisher, Reg Davis Pointer, saying I watched the debate and uh, because at the time you know the Cambridge Union believe it or not had its debates televised <laughs> you know that and, um, and uh, he said I, I want you to write a book on the views you expressed in the debate and I wrote back and I said thank you very much I can't write and he wrote back and he said can you have lunch and uh, I went to London from Cambridge I had lunch with him and he offered me a very modest advance. And he said, I'm going to risk this advance. And if you can't write, he said, I've lost whatever it was, like 5,000 pounds. And um, otherwise, if you turn out to be able to write, we have a book. And that's what happened. That's how I became a writer. It was a complete
0: accident. And what was that experience like? I mean, did it, did, is that what fired you for your lifetime of, of writing and publishing?
1: Yes. I actually, I mean, I always loved, what I loved about the union and debating was I loved the spectacle of moving hearts and minds through words. Hmm. But for me, it was more of a spoken thing. I loved, and I still, this is still my favorite form of communication is Actually, live an event like we're doing now, or speaking—that there's nothing for me like it, because there's the immediate, direct connection. Mm. Um, and but does it then matter
0: which side you take? I mean, because one of the one of the um, signifiers for a truly great debater is the ability to slip from side to side. Oh
1: no, I couldn't do that at all. No, no, <laughs> no because politically, me,
0: you've done a bit of that, haven't you? Oh, really? no, that's I mean. when
1: I, that was when my views changed. Yeah, all that right. That was very different. It's like I. Um, and, and that was very specifically when my views about the role of government changed because my views on um, abortion or gay rights or gun control were always liberal views, even when I was a Republican. But
0: how could you be a Republican and hold those views? Because, I mean, because those unfortunately, are defining that was, views. again,
1: that was ancient days. Yeah. You know? In those days, you could be a Republican and be pro-choice, and pro-gay rights and pro-gun control. The Republican Party of that time was a very different Republican Party than the Republican Party of today. I
0: saw Jeb Bush say, um, I don't know, uh, around about the 2012 election, he said that the Republican Party of today is not a um, party in which his father, George Bush Senior, would have um, won a nomination.
1: Absolutely, and his mother, Barbara Bush, was openly pro-choice. That, that would have been impossible now to Why are
0: those issues, abortion and gun control and so on, why are they such top of mind issues in politics? I mean, in, um, in other democracies, they like ours, for instance, they're not really um, included as part of national political debates.
1: Well, they're not top of mind in the minds of voters. They're top of mind in the minds of a very small minority um, that has managed to sort of hijack the Republican Party. And, um, and in the case of guns, for example, which you must find insane what's happening in America at the moment, you know, we have like uh, um, background checks is approved by over 90% really of of the American electorate and yet we can't pass that legislation. There was that fabulous moment in America where at the same time it was illegal
0: to carry a 500ml Coca-Cola into a cinema in New York, but legal to carry a (laughs) sub-automatic weapon into a cinema in Arizona. Very odd.
1: I know. No wonder you live here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of reasons. All my people are here. Anyway, so I'm interested in this idea of changing your mind because in this kind of increasingly um, uh, divided political era in which we live, to change sides is unthinkable, right? And yet you did. I mean, you worked for Newt Newt Gingrich. You were a passionate Republican voice in American politics. On a very
1: specific area, Mm. which was, uh, again, how it happened is that I've always felt in, in every one of my incarnations, that we had a responsibility um, to give back and that um, we couldn't just delegate that responsibility to government. Mm. And sometimes it sounded to me as though liberals thought we would just delegate that to government. So you're still a small
0: government sort of lady? No,
1: not at all. I still, on the contrary, I think the government has a big role. There are so many problems we need to to address that need, the raw power of government appropriations. But I also believe, and that's part of Thrive, that giving and making that part of our lives is like an essential part of a good life, as well as essential to building a society and a culture where people um, really come together. So I gave a speech um, at a conference which was on C-SPAN called... um, Can conservatives have a social conscience? Urging conservatives to do that. And Newt Gingrich happened to see that Mm -hmm. speech and invited me to speak to the Republican conference because, again, when Newt Gingrich became speaker, he was a very different person. You know, he gave his first speech as speaker praising FDR and talking about how our responsibility to address poverty is a greater priority than than balancing the budget. So it was a very different world. And that's how... And I started working with him on this specific issue of how do we actually bring the better angels of our nature out of people. And, and I still believe that in the media, for example, we are not doing a good, jo- a good job, most of us in the media, in putting the spotlight on good things happening. Hmm. You know, uh, we see we see the role of media. You have a <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> She's we about see... to write something very nice
0: about you on her blog.
1: <laughs> we see the role of media, really, of newspapers, television, everything, as speaking truth to power, um, um, unearthing corruption, and all these things are incredibly important, pointing out all that is dysfunctional. But I also think that we have a responsibility that we are neglecting to put the spotlight on what is working. And we are doing this relentlessly at the Huffington Post. We, for example, have a dedicated section called the Good News Section, which only has good news and which is one of our most popular sections. Uh, we have a section called Impact where we we cover but you see, I mean every newspaper and every television show covers these things occasionally. Mm. You know, in America, around Thanksgiving and Christmas. (laughs) I'm talking about covering them every day, many times of day, with the same relentlessness that we cover what's happening in Parliament or what politicians are saying. Because often, solutions come from what human beings and companies and individuals and communities are doing. I mean, if you can spotlight as um, an entrepreneur who started a business and has created two jobs, it may help him or her create another 10 jobs. Because that's how it works. You know, People find out about it. And we've had many, many examples of that. So I feel very passionate about that. This has been a kind of constant um, in, in how I see the world. And, um, and therefore, when we launched the Huffington Post, it was very much part of our DNA from day one.
0: I'm going to read you um, a little passage, I'm not going to do this very often, but uh, it's about your experience of modern media. Page 189 for anyone who'd like to read along. Um, <laughs> I used to walk into my apartment or a hotel room and immediately turn on the news. And then one day, not too long ago, I stopped. And I realised two things. First, that I didn't miss anything. Not even anything helpful in running a 24-7 media operation, except hearing the same regurgitated talking points being repeated again and again by different people. But the second and more important thing is that I allowed some silence into my day, in which I could, still, I could hear that still, small voice that we rarely give our time and attention to. I lost nothing, but I gained a lot. It's kind of incredible cheek, isn't it, on your part, to <laughs> set up and build a huge edifice within the Tower of Babel that we understand to be modern digital media and then urge everybody to switch the damn thing
1: off? Well, I'm not saying to switch the damn thing off forever. (laughs) I'm just saying to actually take time off um, TV, the internet or whatever. I mean, that is completely consistent with also taking time to go online and update yourself on the news or blog or whatever you want to do. I think the problem we're facing right now is that we're becoming enslaved by technology instead of being liberated by it. And I think it's time that we all sound the alarm. I mean, you have young children. You don't want your children to grow up and be more comfortable with their iPad than with human connections. I mean, I have my younger daughter here who actually has completely revolted. She's 23. She has completely revolted against any social media presence. She's not on Facebook. She doesn't do Twitter. She has no Instagram. And um, whenever, you know, these devices became so dominant that we would find ourselves uh, at home over dinner I or her sister or my ex-husband going to them during dinner, she would cry. (laughs) And she was really the one, she was the conscience of the family that made us really absolutely have this ground rule early on of no devices during dinner, which really sounds so basic, right? Mm. It's not like, oh my God, what an amazing family (laughs) they don't have devices during dinner. (laughs) And yet, it's like... Just ask around. Maybe you are one of the people who doesn't allow devices for dinner, but it's not by any means the norm.
0: You write so beautifully um, in the course of the book about the experience of wonder, you know, and the usefulness of wonder and the productiveness of wonder. But for those of us who have lived through this sort of technical revolution um, and and watched this efflorescence of communications platforms around us in, in my case, the space of half a lifetime, you know, there's so much wonder involved in that. The wonder of being able to get in contact with somebody in Wisconsin because of your shared interest in harpsichords or whatever. You know, there's so much wonder that's contained in that world that it draws us in and I think we... Lose control of the point at which we start behaving abnormally, i.e., lying in bed with two devices, or you know, emailing a partner whilst watching television. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's happened to me. I, that was quite weird, and, and that, you know, <laughs> luckily I realised that that was abnormal, and so I, 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 I shut off the email exchange. Uh, <laughs> but how do you how do you separate genuine wonder from from um, unimportant wonder. That's a clumsily asked question, but I'm hoping you're just going to interpret it any way you like and answer it.
1: Well, I I, I think that I I totally understand what you are saying. I think what modern technology has done is uh, is absolutely stunning and also what it has made possible in terms of uh, democratizing the conversation, giving voice to people who wouldn't otherwise have a voice. I mean, I get all that and it is amazing that Mm. You can talk to somebody in Wisconsin, uh, but, but nevertheless, we are missing out on the wonder of just everyday connections and every, the everyday beauty around us. And I think one of the problems is our misguided belief that multitasking is the way to productivity. Mm. And I have, as you know, a lot of scientific findings that prove that multitasking actually doesn't exist. It's really task switching. It's one of the most stressful things we can do, and uh, it it robs us of wonder. I mean, I know from myself, it's like I I used to um, walk down the streets of New York where I live and either be on the phone or, worse, texting while walking. Have you noticed that phenomenon? (laughs) It is really stunning. That's how you really got your head injury, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I wish. It would have been more dramatic. Now, Ariana's book
0: starts, as do most modern adventures, with a <laughs> catastrophic head injury.
1: Yes, collapsing from burnout and hitting my head and getting uh, break, breaking my cheekbone. Um, but I don't recommend it as your wake-up call. But when... I stopped doing that. I started, when I stopped not collapsing, but uh, walking and on the phone while walking or um, texting while walking, I discovered that I was missing so much. I remember literally walking by this beautiful building practically next door to my apartment and telling a friend, wow, this, this is beautiful, all that detail, and I said, when did this go up? And she said, 1890. <laughs> And you know the times when um, I would be at an event for my children, but really I wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think this is something which a lot of working parents face. You know, are we really there or are we there in body only? Um, I, I was giving a speech at Google, and um, and the um, the woman who Rachel Redstone, who heads public relations for Google was telling a story openly, and it was online, so I'm not disclosing any secrets of how she was reading a story to her young children. And while she was reading the story, she was composing a blog post that she had to post about what was happening at Google at that time, earnings or whatever and she finished her children fell asleep and she realized that she did not remember a word of what she had read to her children and did not remember a word of the blog post she had composed (laughs) so the whole thing was a complete waste (laughs) and yet we thought we were being productive You, you do something funny like that when you read I read somewhere when you read um, to your children in the morning and you do it in a, ska- in a stage voice because... Would you tell us that story? Can I turn the tables on her? I love that you can remember that story about me, which I have... Ska- can you
0: provide me more detail? I do it in a stage voice. Because you
1: wanted to uh, watch something or listen to something. Oh,
0: yes. Sometimes, I, yes, I'm reading aloud and I will read it in a very slow voice so that I can hear the political interview on AM <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> or I will introduce large pauses into the Gruffalo, which was meant to be read that way. Yeah. That <laughs> is ridiculous. I do stupid things like that all the time. The best... Um,
1: But you said that your children are catching on to that, right?
0: Yeah, no, no, it's all over. I've got to, you know, (laughs) I've got to take... And now I get in the shower and that's where I listen to AM because I'm sometimes alone in there, you know. (laughs) Um, But um, the best multitasking story I ever heard, actually, was from a woman I interviewed um, for a book that I just finished. um, And she uh, conducted an international quite high-level teleconference while the family guinea pig was giving birth (laughs) and children squealing. They didn't even know the mum was pregnant. And um, she managed to keep that teleconference going even through the experience of the dad guinea pig eating the newborn. Ah. Yeah. Uh (laughs) That is the best multitasking I've ever heard. Mind you, she's learned from that. These days, she apparently just says... Here's where I am the guinea pigs giving birth. Deal with it, people, which I think is a very good thing. (laughs) Um, Look, when you started the Huffington Post, I mean, you were already an intensely famous person in the US. Um, uh, You had been a gubernatorial candidate in um, the year. 2003 you endorsed various presidential candidates including Warren Beatty who I think is really you know a considerable loss to the presidency. yes
1: actually it would have been much better than a lot of people who made it to the presidency but that's another
0: story what is
1: the story with
0: actors in American politics by the way like I was there in 2008 covering the um, uh, election and I went to an event where Obama was on stage uh, with Jimmy Smith's Mainly because Jimmy Smith had played a Democratic candidate <laughs> and was th- therefore considered something of an authority in some way. Who is that crossover? Why, why, do, why are actors somehow more credible?
1: We're a young country. <laughs> <laughs> we have no royalty. Oh. So Hollywood is royalty. Ooh. And also, as Nora Ephron said famously, it's, politics is all about casting. Right. And um, Ronald Reagan knew that. He certainly
0: did. often wondered um, whether Barack Obama's biggest problem is really Jed Bartlett. Because Australia had, I mean, America had, thanks to the West Wing, this sort of Hollywood version yes. of yes. what a democratic president would look like. And, you know always doing the tough thing and doing the right thing and taking huge risks. And then the next democratic president
1: just didn't turn out to be like that at all. But people wanted them to be like that. Yeah. And so that was part of the fascination with Obama mm. because he made people believe that he could be the West Wing version. Don't you love the way she goes from the guinea pig to Obama, it's kind of flawless. I yeah. love it. In many
0: cultures, that's viewed as a perfectly legitimate progression. Segway. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, back to the Huffington back Post. Back to the guinea pig. So, no, no, we, <laughs> we're going to divert back by way of the guinea pig. We're going to give it a wide berth. I'm not going to say anything more about the Gruffalo. We're going to go back to the Huffington Post because, you know, when you started that up, there was a lot of sort of ho, huh, ho. Huh oh, you know, socialite squillionaire sets up fun blog. It won't last. And, of course, it did, you know, and it was sort of powered by enthusiasm and your famous friends writing things and you writing things and enthusiasm and let's just see how we can, how far we can take this thing. And, of course, it went for miles and miles. Are you surprised by the degree of success
1: of that enterprise? Well, actually, the, first of all, it was greeted with a lot worse (laughs) commentary than what you mentioned. I mean, I remember one review, which I learned by heart, Uh, because my masochism was still intense. And uh, the reviewer said, The Huffington Post is an unsurvivable failure. We were about five hours old. Five hours? She said it is the the movie equivalent of Julie, Heaven's Gate, and Ishtar all rolled into one. (laughs) And for those of you who are not movie buffs, these were all gigantic flops. And um, a year later... She emailed me, and she said, I was wrong. Uh, Hafos has become um, an an essential part of the internet, and I would like to write for you. And and I said, great, we would love you to. Because, you know, one of the things I learned early on, actually, through my mother, is that holding grudges is the worst thing you can do. And I quote Carrie Fisher in the book, who said resentment is the poison you drink thinking the other person is going to die. <laughs> That's such a great line. And I absolutely love it. It is so true. Did you have to, I mean, you, you learned that from
0: your mother who sounds like she was an amazing woman. Um, but is it hard to practice? I mean, I, I read somewhere that you invite people around for dinner when they're awful to you.
1: <laughs> Is that right? You invite you your to be critics. Often to me just to see if that's going kind of <laughs> to Well, I mean, do you ever invite Bill Keller around for dinner? Yes, I absolutely... You know, honestly, I'm not saying that uh, for any other reason except it's the absolute truth. I don't even remember what Bill Keller said. It's not just about not holding a grudge. It's like it's so insignificant. Mm. And I wasn't always like that. I think I consider this the barometer of my spiritual progression, mm. how I deal with criticism. Um, so you don't not get offended or cross. You no, just I just leave it at some. No, I don't point. believe at all in not in having a, high, a thick skin. I don't believe in that at all. I want to be permeable. <laughs> I want the upset to go in and out. You know, you. How old is your youngest child? One. One. Perfect. So I cry a lot. <laughs> if, <you're>, if you, if <laughs> you. If you if you tell your one-year-old that it can't have ice cream, mm. it may throw a temper tantrum, right? And be awfully upset. And then... Probably because minutes, I've eaten it. Probably because you... Or the guinea pig ate it. And then two minutes later, it's all smiles and joy. And it's as though I don't think they even remember that that's you said that they well. were upset. I, that's my role model. Little children and the way they handle upset is my role model. So that's do you how scream and cry? Be. I mean, are you, you are kind of I'm primal I'm not a screamer, screamer, but I'm isn't... a huge crier. Oh, really? When that's ask my daughter. I, I cry a lot. It's very cathartic. I love crying. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, my children no longer worry if I cry. You know, they realize it's fine. Um <laughs> So this is going to be your next book, isn't it? It's crying. Just Cry it out by Ariana Huffington. Well, it's sort of, it's, I did my TED talk about sleep your way to the top. <laughs> Maybe I can do, like, cry your way to happiness? I think it's got a lot of potential.
0: <laughs> so, obviously, you confounded your critics and then you'd already forgotten about them anyway, so it was, that was good. Um, you know, after the massive success that has been the Huffington Post um, in an era where new digital startups were always sort of um, viewed with suspicion by, particularly among legacy media, you and you sold Huffington Post obviously for many hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, AOL. Terrific, um, but you then became this sort of um, whipping post for criticism on the ba- on the basis that you know, a lot of your writers were unpaid. And I think one of the interesting parts about um, the digital media world that we now inhabit is that there are many, many threats and uncomfortable things to be found for those of us who have worked as paid journalists in the the legacy media. One of them is that people now expect to read for free. The other is that people are prepared to write for free. And I wonder if you could tell us what your experience um, of, of that circumstance has been, how you deal with the criticism, and whether you think it's reasonable not to pay people and why? Well,
1: I, I just really have to say that I think the people who make that criticism do not have a clue what the internet is. <laughs> you know, the internet has made possible platforms, it's like saying Facebook had an IPO worth like trillions of dollars, whatever it was, and they don't pay the people who update their Facebook profiles. No, they sell them though. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, you can say Yahoo bought Tumblr for a billion dollars and there are all these people writing for free on their Tumblr blogs and they don't get paid. People write Yelp reviews of restaurants. People update Wikipedia entries. When will people wake up? and realise what the internet is. What it has made possible is this explosion of self-expression. But your enterprise
0: looks a bit like a newspaper, but it's online, so I guess it's it's
1: a... Our our enterprise is a hybrid. Mm. It is a journalistic enterprise with 850 people on payroll, very well paid, and it is a platform, and for the platform, People write if they want to write. You know, it's not like they're they're forced to write. They're not our writers. We never know when somebody's going to blog. We don't depend on that. And they range from very well-established people, politicians, actors. Most of them are not writers. They're people who are writing because they have something they want to express. Like, when somebody comes on your show, do they get paid?
0: My show? Uh, No. No.
1: No. They don't get paid. Is that fair?
0: Lots of people don't get paid for things that we no, used to pay for. No, no, them what for, I'm saying is that people it's
1: come on your show because they want a platform for their views. I go on TV because I want an additional platform for my views. Blogging is the same thing. Anybody who blogs on the Huffington Post or anywhere else owns the rights to the blog. They can repurpose it. And a lot of the people who blog on the Huffington Post have already produced that for their own Facebook or for their own blog or for another blog. And it doesn't matter to us. We're not looking for exclusivity. We are offering an additional distribution platform for people who want to use it. And if they don't want to use it, it's not a problem at all because we have tens of thousands of people clamoring to use it Uh, because we are not a free-for-all. And that gives it a certain prestige. You know, we're not Tumblr, you know, Mm -hmm. where anybody can have their own blog. So I'm I'm being kind of intense about it because I want people to understand Mm -hmm. something that is, like, here to stay. It's such an evolution, isn't it, um, industrially? I mean, one of the
0: discomforting elements of this media revolution for professional writers and communicators and journalists and so on is that everyone is discovering that writing is really fun and doing it, in some cases, better than us for free. I mean, that's quite a uh, panic-inducing moment when you realise that someone who's really good at something is prepared to do it for free, and that kind of undercuts your own ability to kind of make a living, right? Well,
1: if is really good at it, they're going to make money in different ways.
0: It's like tennis, you know. Lots of people like playing tennis, but only a few people get paid for it.
1: Right. But I think what happens is that... A lot of people who write, I mean, what is good is the story they tell or what they're expressing. It's not necessarily that it's incredibly polished. It's very conversational. The people who, are, who turn out to be really good writers, I mean, we have so many people who are discovered through their blogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of our favorite things is getting calls from publishers saying, can you connect me with so-and-so? We love the way they write. Or. We have people who get TV shows based on their blogs. We had a homeless teenager who wrote a beautiful blog, and the Harvard admissions office read it, and he's now in his third year at Harvard. You know, I mean, I love, for me, that's the magic of what a platform makes possible. And, uh, and it's not at all inconsistent with professional journalism. When we won a Pulitzer for a 10-part series, on the life of returning vets that took our military correspondent nine months to do. But again, everything we do includes bringing in um, our readers. So let's say he, while he was researching that, he would reach out to our readers and say, do you have any stories of returning vets in your communities? Can you send us video? So that um, expands really what any article is about. What about your relationships with your fellow media moguls?
0: Because I guess, you know, Rupert Murdoch's your fellow me- media mogul now. Um, he has different kinds of media properties and a different approach. Um, his Twitter account is slightly more entertaining than yours, and I mean that in a good way. Um, but, you know, he's really hot on the case of these terrible aggregators that Nick copy, um, sorry, Steel copy. Nick is maybe an, American, an Australian word, um, that grab copy from um, uh, outlets that that have paywalls or or pay their journalists, and um, and pull it all together and. You're nothing but a terrible parasite. I mean, that's kind of what the Murdoch analysis is. We get it a bit too in public broadcasting because um, well, we provide content you know, for free. Well, people,
1: obviously, if people steal copy without following fair use rules, as mm. we call it in the States, I don't know what the term is here, then that is wrong. I think. Um, for us, aggregation means linking to the creator of the content so the traffic is driven back to them and they can monetize the traffic. We get hundreds of requests every day from legacy journalists to link to their stories because it drives eyeballs to their stories. Um, so these are like the three different ways that we produce content on HuffPost. Mm-hmm. You know, Our own original reporting, aggregation, and blogs and comments, if you want a fourth, which are like the public commenting on, on the stories. Um, and incidentally, the Wall Street Journal has bloggers that don't pay, and it is owned by Rupert Murdoch. So this is really a red herring hmm. and a guinea pig, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I sense a KV theme rapidly <laughs> emerging.
1: Um, guinea pigs are very important in my family, too. Is because, that right? Yes, uh, my oldest daughter had a guinea pig as her first pet and mm. adored it. And then the guinea pig died when she was at school. I and watched I my guinea
0: pigs be <laughs> murdered in front of me by an escaped ferret. Beat uh, that.
1: Wow. Mine no, were uh, free
0: range. They lived in the woodpile. But wait, wood
1: wait, wait, I think I may beat yours. Here, listen oh <laughs> What happened is that I was so upset, and I, I thought that she, this was going to be so devastating for her, on top of me getting divorced from her husband, from, from my husband, about the same time. So she was already in a vulnerable position. I thought, no, the guinea pig died, so, so I went oh, no. and got another guinea pig, <laughs> and, and I couldn't say it was the same guinea pig, but I said, this is the sister of the guinea pig. <laughs> Probably technically accurate. <laughs> But she didn't really believe it. She, there was something about it that she didn't really believe this was the sister of the guinea pig. How did we
0: get here? I'm
1: just trying to remember. I honestly can't remember how we got to swapping
0: loss of guinea pig stories. You know, I'm pretty sure I had a dream like this once. Like, I was on stage with Arianna Huffington and we were talking about guinea pigs and then I totally lost my train of thought. Um, you are, um, you, you know, you, there's... Comments are plenty on the Huffington Post and it creates this sort of vast, multi-directional conversation. Have you ever thought about rolling that back? I mean, it's sort of such Actually, a huge amount of content. we did roll it back. And we,
1: um, our comments were always pretty moderated, both mm. through algorithms and through 40 human comment moderators because we wanted to keep a civil discourse. But um, a few months ago, we ended anonymity altogether. So in order to comment on the Huffington Post, you have to disclose who you are unless you're a whistleblower or something and you demonstrate to um, our comment managers a a valid reason. Because I think we found out that trolls hiding behind anonymity Mm. become particularly vicious, especially towards women. And uh, and that, uh, in fact, if they don't have a reason to be anonymous, why would we give them that right?
0: Anonymity is a privilege that many, many people online stand by and defend. And abuse. Did you? I agree. Um, Have you found that asking people to identify themselves has changed the tone of the discourse?
1: No. We found that it has made it easier for us to be able to maintain a civil discourse, because trolls have become so ingenious. You know, they can find multiple ways to um, circumvent, you know, our algorithms or even the human comment moderators.
0: I want to talk about. You, you talk about um, in your book. The you bemoan, I guess, and and um, and lament the decreasing opportunity for surprise in modern life. You talk. You tell a lovely story about um, your daughter Isabella. Um, as part of an art school assignment going to study a painting, The Fighting Temeraire by Turner, for two hours. She had to stare at this painting for two hours. You found it kind of a transcendental um, experience. But just that time and the capacity for the surprise of what you find in a painting when you gaze at it for so long is something that you think we miss out on in
1: modern life. Yes, because we are always rushing, Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things that Isabella found was that after an hour of standing in front of the painting, um, the guard came up to her and asked her what she was doing, because this was sort of suspect. (laughs) You know, people don't stand in front of paintings for more than 30 seconds, and normally they have a nap in front of them to explain what the painting is. So they might as well stay home. So that's another intrusion of technology into the way we Mm. absorb art. But the way way that we
0: broadcast our details and our preferences to the world through every time we interact with a network. I mean, our phones are broadcasting more information to the world about us than ever before. I mean, Google customizes itself to your preferences. are we eliminating the capacity to be surprised or to come across material that we didn't know we were going to like?
1: Well, I think that's a very valid question because it's one of the problems with personalization, because personalization is based on where you are right now, but we are constantly evolving. And Huffington Post was an, uh, a pioneer in
0: search engine optimization, where you um, take advantage of what you sense people are going to be interested in. I mean, there's an increasing tailor-made aspect, isn't there, well, to I modern media? Well, I find that
1: what, what we love to do is to keep adding sections <laughs> that appeal to all our interests. Like, we, I remember when we launched a section on divorce, for example, I mean, nobody had a section on divorce. Not in the good news section, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, sometimes it should be in the good news
0: section. Um, Is it true that you divorced your husband because he tried to um, give you voice training?
1: No, I was joking about that. Oh but he, he, he did give me a... It's a great did, voice. He, you should He keep did it. give me a passive-aggressive present once of a dialect coach. Uh, for two weeks, and not just any dialect coach, but Jessica Drake, who is a famous Hollywood dialect coach who, who taught Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump, and she would want Is that what
0: he was looking for in a wife? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, God. guinea pigs, let's go back to guinea pigs. No, 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 I think we're, we're okay to have this exchange, aren't we? I mean, like, oh, absolutely. He wanted Nothing you to talk more limits. like Forrest Gump.
1: Or just less like me. <laughs>
0: Um, where were we? I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, oh, we were oh, at your divorce pages. My
1: divorce page, yeah. okay. So, Nora Ephron um, came to me, who was an editor at large at the Huffington Post. She came to me one morning and she said, You know, we must launch a divorce section. She said, Because, you know, marriage comes and goes, but divorce is forever. <laughs> <laughs> Now, and so we launched our Divorce Section, which has been phenomenally successful. And the emphasis of the Divorce Section actually has been co-parenting. Because yeah. one of the hardest things... I don't know if there are any people here who are divorced. Uh, but, you know, that's, so. that's one of the hardest things. And yet, you know, if we prioritise our children, co-parenting becomes the most important thing. And you've remained on fabulously yes. good terms I your, mean, with I your, your ex we've, we've, uh, we have vacations together. Um, we did put our children first, we have the children's birthdays together. And, um, and so, I'm not saying it's easy, I'm just saying that it was a big priority for us. So, but to go back to personalization, um, I found that anytime, time, you know, I, I would be really interested in something new, like sleep, seven years ago after my collapse, it becomes a Huffington Post section. uh, Tune in and nap out. And also find out the latest science about how sleep is a miracle drug that um, helps us be more creative, more productive, healthier, of course. And yet men, especially, have tended to despise sleep. It's not sleeping as a status symbol, isn't it? Yes, it's a status symbol. It's a macho thing. Can I,
0: you know, I'm very interested in this. Can I pause you right there? You
1: said you were sleep-deprived. Well, when of course I am. have three children.
0: Um, But, you know, I can nap anywhere. Um, I'm, I'm rudely pressing pause because we've got about ah. ten minutes left. And, look, we can... T- I know. I know. But the thing is that um, Ariana has got a packed schedule after this um, Well, so I
1: actually have to catch a plane to right. Melbourne. I She's going know. for an urgent nap. Um, but anyway, I, there, don't is, worry. there there was Forget a, a promise of
0: audience questions. And I know that I'm always a hog, and I, I hog the attention of the guests. So, you know, should we just keep talking, or do you want to do questions? Yell if you want to do questions.
1: OK. Well, you know. There's a lady
0: here in the front who has a question. Okay. Well, there are are microphones... Look, this is useless. I can't see a thing. So um, there and there, I think. The exits and the microphones are there and there. So if you want to ask a question, have a shuffle... Ariana will finish her remarks about um, sleeplessness being a status symbol. And if anyone has shuffled to the microphones, oh, there they are. They're, they're, they've got a golden light on them. They're over there and over there. They're lit from above. So shuffle that way, and we won't know, we'll know that you're not leaving early and being rude. And Ariana, uh, resume. So, yes, I,
1: um, I had a dinner recently with a guy mm. who bragged that he had um, slept four hours the night before. We had a prime minister like that once. I hope he's no longer your prime minister. He is
0: no longer the prime minister. Great. I, I think Good. he wants to be UN secretary general, so you probably see more of him.
1: <laughs> I'm not even joking about that. He really does. Well, you know, Bill Clinton, I quote him in the book uh, saying that the most important mistakes he, I, I made in my life, he said, I made when I was tired. Right. He did not specify what mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> But the bottom line is that when you are sleep deprived and exhausted, you are likely to make more mistakes, and therefore you should not be running a country or driving a car <laughs> or doing anything important or saving a guinea pig. Well, so, Winston
0: Churchill did it, but he was also drunk a lot of the time. He I loved think power that was enough. Yeah.
1: yeah, he did. What happened with the guy at dinner? Okay, only thank you four for remembering. Off? You were such a good interview. <laughs> so, um, no, nothing happened with the guy at dinner. But <laughs> <laughs> See, now you just think I'm (laughs) catastrophically nosy and rude.
0: No, 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 but I I
1: thought to myself, but I didn't say that to him. I thought to myself that, you know what? If if you had gotten five hours sleep, this dinner would have been a lot more interesting. (laughs) And something might have happened. (laughs) So, okay, it's easy to say, or it's easy for you to
0: write because you're a completely, you know, anyone would publish any book that you write, and you write a very convincing book about um, changing the metrics of success. And I found the whole book highly convincing. How do we convince the people who are currently working on the old metrics of success, who still think that it's um, a sign of productivity and value as an employee to work your ass off around the clock and never sleep and fall over and hit your head periodically?
1: Well, first of all, it is changing. We're now in this amazing time of transition when more and more companies are recognizing the connection between stress reduction practices, taking care of the well-being of their employees, giving them predictable time off and the bottom line. And they're actually bringing in universities to study and produce data as Aetna just recently did. And they found 7% reduction in healthcare costs. 69 minutes a week improvement in productivity. So then when you have hardcore data, you don't have to have a big heart. You can just say, hey, this is good for the it's bottom line. a business case. Yes, exactly. And I think that's what's going to accelerate that, not to mention recruitment and retention. I mean, increasingly, people are saying, why should I go work in a company that thinks working... Um, around the clock and being available around the clock is the way to advance your career. Why not go and work for all these enlightened companies that have already realized that this, these are not performance enhancement Do you think ways. you'd be as
0: successful as you are without having burnt that midnight A thousand
1: oil. percent. A thousand really? percent as successful and also having damaged my health less and my relationships and having enjoyed my life infinitely more because I didn't have the obnoxious roommate gnawing at me and, and all these negative fantasies. You know I quote Montaigne in the book who said there were many terrible things in my life but most of them never happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know you still look like you're having quite a lot of fun through most of it. We have a questioner. I am now.
0: Over here. But I'm thriving, yes. Am I on? Am I on? You are on, but in a strangely disembodied way. Do we have any more? Because I can hear you, but only through this little box here. So you sound like my, you know, terrible roommate. Um. (laughs) I've got two questions. Um, Please keep it to one just because we've only got about five minutes. So pick the very best one and then we'll hear from this lady. Sorry, that would be great. In your various incarnations, talk us through some of the ways you motivate yourself. So you get up in the morning and you're just not feeling it. How do you motivate yourself?
1: (laughs) Great question. So, um, I think the, the early morning motiva- motivation now starts from the night before. I feel that if I, have, if I have gotten enough sleep, I'm much more motivated. Because I'm recharged. Because I'm ready to face life and whatever life brings. So, I think that that has made a big difference. And also... Generally, by being engaged in things I really love, even when it's tough, I'm not saying that there haven't always been challenges and obstacles, but when I kind of am really engaged in what I'm doing, I think that is a huge motivator in itself. Okay, and from our other side...
0: Uh, Do you think that the spiritual awakening that you've experienced and the recognition of coincidences that aren't really coincidences... Great section on coincidences in the book, such a good section. Do you think that's helping to combat the lack of surprise that we're seeing due to technology? You know, we're surprising ourselves with our own lives.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I, I... I absolutely love coincidences, and coincidences are full of surprises. And even people who would consider themselves atheists and, and have no spiritual interest love coincidences because it's coincidences, somebody said, are the miracles that God performs anonymously. And even if you don't believe in God, you kind of love them. And some of them are silly coincidences. Can that I write tell, about in the book. Can you, you tell, tell the story about of Esther? Esther. Oh, yes, that's I exactly love it. the
0: one I was hoping you'd tell. So, tell us the Esther story. <laughs> tell it in a funny voice. <laughs> oh, sorted. Okay. That's the only voice I have.
1: <laughs> I love it. Don't, Don't worry. Thing. I'll just cry and then I'll feel <laughs> So um, there was this couple and... Um, they had just started a relationship, and um, the boyfriend uh, went to buy a sandwich at Subway. Do you have Subway here? Yes, everywhere. And um, he, he, in the change he was given, there was um, a dollar bill, and on the dollar bill was the name Esther, which is the name of his girlfriend. So he was kind of surprised and taken aback, and when he went to see his girlfriend, he told her the story. And the girlfriend didn't say much. Um a couple of years later they were married and um after they were married she said to him when he presented her with a dollar bill framed that in fact what had happened is that she was she she was kind of asking god you know how do i know that the man i'm dating is the right man that i should marry and she thought to herself, okay, I'm going to put my name on a dollar bill, and if a man gets it, then that will be the right man to marry. But when he told her that he had gotten that bill, she didn't feel that she had, she could tell him the story, because they had just started dating, yeah. <laughs> when and she, she him away. thought he would think, wow, yes, he's just going to run away. Like, and, and that was like a story which, you know, doesn't have any cosmic significance but the odds of that happening are so kind of astronomical, you know, that you wonder what, what are the connections, you know, the, that, that are there invisible. And it just gives us a little glimpse that there, is, that there is such huge mystery in the universe. That's really, you don't have to believe anything more than that, but kind of acknowledge the mystery of the universe puts us in a state of wonder and, and takes away the kind of prosaic nature of everyday life. You know,
0: what really sparkles through this book is the joy and the wonder that you take in coincidences, in the spiritual side of life, in the capacity constantly to be surprised and inspired. I'm sure over the course of your career, regardless of the fact that at many junctures, apparently, you were having less fun than we all assumed, (laughs) um, it has driven you and pursued you and enriched you through life. And um, I'd like to thank you for joining us here tonight and sharing some of that spirit with us. I did not expect to talk so much about guinea pigs, but there you go. Our capacity <laughs> for wonder in the animal kingdom has once again been proven tonight. I'm sorry, we're out of time. We really could talk forever, I think, um, and we've barely touched on um, the fullness of your life experience. But thank you for joining us in any thank event. You. Can we all give Ariana a big round of applause? Have a stand up? Thank you so much. Thank you. You're
1: wonderful Thank you.